Chapter 5 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 5 To gain over... Thanks to the means furnished me by my incomparable friend, the lower officers of the garrison, to arrange with another prisoner as desirous of liberty as myself, to give a great blow of my fist to one sentinel, a great blow of my foot to another, a great blow of my sword to a third, to make a prodigious leap to the bottom of the rampart, precipitating before me my friend, who could not decide quickly enough, and who dislocated his foot in falling, to take him up, place him upon my shoulders to run thus for a quarter of an hour, to cross the knives, with the water up to my waist, in a fog which would not permit me to see the tip of my nose, to run again on the other bank, to walk the whole night, a horrible night, to get lost, to wander in the snow around a mountain without knowing where I was, and to hear four in the morning strike from the clock of Glatz. That is, to have lost my time and my trouble in order to find myself under the walls of the city at break of day, to recover my courage, enter the hut of a peasant, and with my pistol at his head, to take from him two horses, to fly at full speed and at every hazard, to obtain my liberty through a thousand artifices, a thousand terrors, a thousand sufferings, a thousand dangers. And to find myself at last without money, without clothes, almost without bread, in this severe season, in a foreign country. But to feel myself free, after having been condemned to a horrible and eternal captivity, to think upon an adorable friend, to say that this news would fill her with joy, to make a thousand rash and delightful projects for again approaching her. This is being more happy than Frederick of Prussia. This is being the most happy of men. This is being the elect of Providence. Such was the substance of the letter of young Frederick Dietrich to the Princess Amelia, and the facility with which Madame de Kleist read it to her, proved to the poor Perina, surprised and affected, that this correspondence in ciphers was very familiar to them. There was a postscriptum in these words. The person who will remit this letter to you is as trusty as the others were unfaithful. You can at last confide in her without reserve, and transmit to her all your dispatches for me. The Count of St. Germain will furnish her with means to make them reach me. But it is necessary that the said Count, whom I do not wish to trust in every respect, should never hear your name mentioned, and should believe me in love with the Signora Porporina, although it is not so, and I have never felt other than a pure and peaceful friendship for her. Let no cloud obscure than the beautiful brow of the divinity whom I adore. It is for her alone that I breathe, and I would rather die than deceive her. While Madame de Kleist deciphered this postscript in a loud voice, 
emphasizing each word. The Princess Amelia attentively examined the features of the porporina to endeavor to discover there an expression of sorrow, of humiliation, or of vexation. The angelic serenity of that worthy being entirely reassured her, and she again began to cover her with caresses, crying out, And I suspected you, poor child. You not know how jealous I have been of you, how much I have hated and cursed you. I tried to find you ugly and a bad actress, exactly because I feared to find you too handsome and too good. That was because my brother, fearing lest I should form an acquaintance with you, even while he pretended to wish to bring you to my concerts, had taken pains to make me believe that you had been Trank's mistress, his idol at Vienna. He knew very well that was the means of keeping me always estranged from you. And I believed him, while you devote yourself to the greatest dangers in order to bring me this welcome news. Then you do not love the king? Ah, you are right. He is the most perverse and the most cruel of men. Oh, madam, madam, said Madame de Kleist, frightened by the want of reserve and the delirious volubility with which the princess talked before the porporina. To what dangers you would expose yourself at this moment, if Mademoiselle were not an angel of courage and devotedness. It is true. I am in such a state. I verily believe I have lost my wits. Shut the doors tight, de Kleist, and first see if there is anyone in the antechambers who could have heard me. As to her, added the princess, pointing at the porporina, look at her and tell me if it is possible for anyone to doubt a face like hers. No, no, I am not so imprudent as I seem, dear porporina. Do not believe that I speak to you with open heart from heedlessness, nor that I shall repent it when I become calm. I have an infallible instinct, you must know, my child. I have an insight which has never deceived me. It is in the family, and my brother the king, who prides himself upon it, is not my equal in that respect. No, you will not betray me. I see it. I know it. You would not betray a woman who is consumed by an unhappy love and who has undergone sufferings of whom no one has an idea. Oh, madam, never, said the porporina, kneeling beside her, as if to take God to witness of her oath. Neither you nor Monsieur de Trenc, who saved my life, nor anyone else in the world, moreover. He saved your life? Ah, I am certain he has saved many others. He is so brave, so good, so handsome. He is very handsome, is he not? But you cannot have looked at him much. Otherwise you would have fallen in love with him, and you did not. Is it not true? You should tell me how you knew him. And how he saved your life, but not now. I cannot listen to you. I must talk. My heart overflows. It is so long that it has been dry in my breast. I must talk, still talk. Let me alone, de Kleist. I must breathe out my joy or I shall burst. Only close the doors. Watch, guard me, take care of me. Have pity upon me, my poor friends, for I am very happy and the princess burst into tears. 
You must know, resumed she, after some moments, and in a voice interrupted by sobs, but with an agitation which nothing could calm, that he pleased me the first day I saw him. He was eighteen, as beautiful as an angel, and so learned, so frank, so brave. They wished to marry me to the king of Sweden. Oh, yes, and my sister Ulrika wept tears of vexation that I should become a queen and she remain unmarried. My good sister, said I, there is a way by which we can both be satisfied. The nobles who govern Sweden want a Catholic queen. I will not abjure. They want a good little queen, very indolent, very quiet, without any inclination for political action. If I were queen, I should wish to reign. I will pronounce myself clearly on these points before the ambassadors, and you will see that tomorrow they will write to their prince that you are much better fitted for Sweden than I am. I did as I said, and my sister is queen of Sweden, and I have played a part ever since that day, all the days of my life. Ah, poor Barina, you think you are an actress? No, you do not know what it is to be acting all one's life, morning, noon, evening, and often night. For everyone who lives about us is busied only with spying, guessing, and betraying us. I was obliged to pretend a great deal of sorrow and vexation when, by my own act, my sister robbed me of the crown of Sweden. I was obliged to pretend to detest Trank, to consider him ridiculous, to laugh at him and what not, and that at the very time when I adored him, when I was his mistress, when I was suffocating with transport and happiness as I am today. Ah, more than today, alas. But Trank had not been my strength and my prudence. He was not born a prince, and he did not know how to deceive and to lie like me. The king discovered all, and, according to the custom of kings, he lied. He pretended to see nothing, but he persecuted Trink, and that handsome page, his favorite, became the object of his hatred and his fury. He overwhelmed him with humiliations and severities. He placed him under arrest seven days in eight. But on the eighth, Trink was in my arms, for nothing frightens him, nothing repels him. How could I help adoring so much courage? Well, the king thought of entrusting him with a mission to a foreign court, and when he had fulfilled it with as much ability as promptness, my brother was so infamous as to accuse him of having betrayed the plans of our fortresses and the secrets of the war to his cousin Trank, the Pandor, who was in the service of Maria Teresa. That was a means, not only of separating him from me, by an eternal captivity, but of dishonoring him, of making him perish with vexation, despair, and rage in the horrors of a dungeon. See if I can esteem and bless my brother. My brother is a great man, they say. I tell you, he is a monster. Ah, take care that you do not love him, young girl, for he will break you like a branch. But you must pretend to do so, do you see? Always pretend. In the atmosphere in which we live, we must breathe in secret. I pretend to adore my brother. I am his well-beloved sister, as all know or think they know. He is full of attentions towards me. 
He himself gathers cherries from the Espalais at Sanssouci, and deprives himself of them. He who loves nothing else upon the earth in order to send them to me. And before he gives the basket to the page who brings them, he counts them that he may be certain the page does not eat any on the way. What delicate attention, what simplicity. Worthy of Henry the Fourth or King René. But he makes my lover perish in a dungeon underground and tries to dishonor him in my eyes in order to punish me for having loved him. What a great heart and what a good brother. So how we do loved each other. Even while speaking, the princess became pale. Her voice weakened by degrees and became extinct. Her eyes appeared fixed and as if starting from their sockets. She remained motionless, mute and livid. She had lost all consciousness. The porporina, terrified, assisted Madame de Kleist to unlace her and carry her to her bed, where she recovered a little and continued to murmur unintelligible words. This attack will soon pass away, thank heaven, said Madame de Kleist to the cantatrice. When she has recovered power over her will, I will call her women. As to yourself, my dear child, it is absolutely necessary that you should go into the music room and sing to the walls, or rather to the ears of the antechamber, for the king will infallibly know that you have come here, and it must not appear that you have done any other business with the princess than music. The princess will be ill. That will serve to conceal her joy. She must not appear to have any idea of Trunk's escape, nor must you either. The king knows it at this moment. That is certain. He will be angry. He will have horrible suspicions, and about everybody. Take care of yourself. You are lost as well as I, if he discovers that you have given that letter to the princess, and women are sent to the fortresses as well as men in this country. They are forgotten there intentionally, as well as men. You are warned. Adieu. Sing and depart without noise as without mystery. We must be at least a week without seeing you, in order to avoid suspicion. Depend upon the gratitude of the princess. She is magnificent, and knows how to recompense devotedness. Alas, madam, said the porporina sadly, then you consider threats and promises necessary with me. I pity you for having such an idea. Overcome with fatigue after the violent emotion she had shared, and still suffering from her own emotion of the evening before, the porporina nevertheless seated herself at the harpsichord and was beginning to sing, when her door opened behind her so softly that she did not perceive it, and suddenly she saw in the mirror against which the instrument was placed the figure of the king depicted beside her. She shuddered and wished to rise, but the king, placing the tips of his dry fingers upon her shoulder, compelled her to remain seated and to continue. She obeyed with much repugnance and discomfort. Never had she felt less inclined to sing, and never had Frederick's presence seemed to her more freezing and more adverse to musical inspiration. That was sung with perfection, said the king, as she finished her piece, during which she had remarked with terror, then he went on tiptoe to listen behind the half-open door of his sister's bedchamber. 
but I remark with sorrow, added he, that your beautiful voice is somewhat impaired this morning. You ought to have reposed yourself, instead of yielding to the strange caprices of the Princess Amelia, who makes you come in order not to listen to you. Her royal highness found herself suddenly indisposed, replied the young girl, terrified at the king's dark and moody looks, and I was ordered to continue to sing in order to divert her. I assure you it is a labor lost, and that she does not listen to you at all, replied the king dryly. She is chatting within there with Madame de Kleist, as if nothing was the matter, and since it is so, we can chat together here without caring for them. Your illness does not appear very serious. I believe your sex passes very quickly from one extreme to the other in such matters. People thought you dead last evening. Who would have imagined that you would have come this morning to amuse and divert my sister? Will you have the goodness to tell me by what chance you presented yourself here so abruptly? The poor Perina, confused by this question, asked heaven to inspire her. Sire, replied she, striving to recover assurance, I do not know very well myself. I was asked this morning for the score which you see. I thought it was my duty to bring it myself. I expected to leave my books in the antechamber and to return immediately. Madame de Cly saw me. She named me to her highness, who apparently had a curiosity to see me closely. I was compelled to enter. Her Highness deigned to question me respecting the style of several pieces of music. Then, feeling ill, she ordered me to let her hear this one while she lay down upon her bed. And now, I think I may be permitted to go to the rehearsal. It is not time yet, said the King. I do not know why you are in such a hurry to get away when I wish to talk with you. Because I fear to be always out of place with your Majesty. You want common sense, my dear. So much more reason, sire. You will remain, returned he, compelling her to seat herself again in front of the piano and placing himself erect before her. And he added, examining her with a half-fatherly, half-inquisitorial air. Is what you have just been telling me true? The poor Perina overcame the horror she had of falsehood. She had often said to herself that she would be sincere with this terrible man, so far as regarded herself, but that she would know how to lie whenever the safety of his victims was at stake. She now found herself unexpectedly at the critical moment when the goodwill of the master might be changed into fury. She would willingly have made the sacrifice rather than descend to dissimulation, but the fate of Trank and of the princess depended upon her ability and her presence of mind. She called the art of the actress to her assistance, and bore with a smile the malicious eagle glance of the king. It was rather that of a vulture at the moment. Well, said the king, why don't you answer? Why does your majesty wish to frighten me by pretending to doubt what I have just said? You have not by any means a frightened look. On the contrary, I think you have a very bold air this morning. Sire, we fear only those we hate. Why do you wish me to fear you? Frederick bristled up his crocodile armor in order not to be moved by this reply. The most coquettish he had even obtained from the porporina. 
He immediately changed the conversation according to his custom, which is a great art, more difficult than people think. Why did you faint away on the stage last evening? Sire, that cannot be of the least importance to your majesty, and it is my secret. What did you eat at breakfast to make yourself free in your language with me this morning? I smelt of a certain flask which filled me with confidence in the justice and goodness of him who had brought it to me. Ah, you took that for a declaration, did you, said Frederick, in a freezing tone with a cynical sneer. No, thank God, replied the young girl with a feeling of very sincere terror. Why do you say thank God? Because I know that your majesty makes only declarations of war, even to women. You are neither the Tsarina nor Maria Theresa. What war can I have with you? That which the lion may have with the gnat. And what whim have you now to quote such a fable? The gnat killed the lion by teasing him. It was doubtless a poor lion, fractious and consequently weak. I could therefore have no thought of that apologue. But the gnat was sharp and biting, Perhaps the apologue fits you. Does your majesty think so? Yes. Sire, that is a falsehood. Frederick seized the young girl's hand and almost crushed it in his convulsive grasp. There was both love and anger in this strange action. The porporina did not change countenance, and the king added, looking at her red and swollen hand, You are brave. No, sire. But I do not pretend to want courage, as do all those who surround you. What do you mean? That people often pretend death in order not to be killed. In your place, I shall not like to be thought so terrible. With whom are you in love, said the king, again changing the subject of conversation. With no one, sire. In that case, why do you have nervous attacks? That is of no consequence to the fate of Prussia, and consequently, the king cannot care to know. Do you think, then, that it is the king who is talking with you? I cannot forget it. Still, you must determine upon doing so. The king will never talk to you. It was not the king's life you saved, mademoiselle. But I did not find Captain Kreutz here. Is that a reproach? It would be unjust. The king did not go yesterday to inquire about your health. Captain Kreutz did. The distinction is too subtle for me, Sir Captain. Well, try to learn it. Here, when I put my hat upon my head, thus a little to the left, I will be the captain. And when I put it on the right, thus, I will be the king. And accordingly as I am, you shall be Consuela, or... Mademoiselle Porporina. I understand, sire. Well, that will be impossible for me. Your majesty is free to be two, to be three, to be a hundred. I can be but one. That is not true. You will not speak to me on the stage before your comrades, as you do here. Sire, do not be too sure of that. Ah, you have the devil in you today. Your Majesty's hat is neither to the right or the left, and I do not know to whom I am speaking. The king, overcome by the attraction he felt towards the porporina, especially at this moment, 
raised his hand to his hat with an air of cheerful good nature and placed it over his left ear with so much exaggeration that his terrible face became comical. He wished to be a simple mortal and a king in vacation as much as possible. But suddenly, remembering that he had come there, not to seek distraction from his cares, but to discover the secrets of the abbess of Quidlinburg. He took his hat entirely off with a quick and vexed motion. A smile died upon his lips. His brow again became cloudy, and he rose, saying to the young girl, Remain here. I will come for you. And he passed into the chamber of the princess, who waited for him with trembling. Madame de Kleist, having seen him talking with the porporina, had not dared to stir from the bedside of her mistress. She had made vain attempts to hear their conversation, and, unable to catch a single word, in consequence of the great size of the apartments, she was more dead than alive. On her side, the porporina shuddered at the thought of what was about to take place. Usually grave and respectfully sincere with the king, she had done violence to her feelings in order to distract him by her somewhat affectedly frank coquetries. From the dangerous interrogatory he began to subject her to. She had hoped to deter him entirely from tormenting his unhappy sister. But Frederick was not a man to be turned from his purpose, and the attempts of the poor girl failed before the obstinacy of the despot. She recommended the Princess Amelia to God, for she well understood that the king compelled her to remain there in order to compare her explanations with those which were prepared in the next chamber. She could no longer doubt it on seeing the care with which he closed the door behind him as he entered. She remained, therefore, a quarter of an hour in a state of painful expectation, agitated by a little fever, terrified by the intrigue in which she saw herself involved, discontented with the part she had forced herself to play, retracing with affright those insinuations which began to reach her from all sides as to the possibility of the king's love for her and the kind of agitation which the king himself had betrayed in that respect by his strange conduct. End of chapter 5